This episode was recorded on the countries of the Bunurong Bunurong people and the Wandri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. I would like to pay my respect to Elders both past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. Welcome to Weekend Birder. I'm your host, Kirsty Costa, and I'm a teacher and conservationist. Today, you and I are going to learn from Georgia Angus. Georgia is an author, illustrator, working on Wondery Country, and I'm thrilled that she is here to teach us some of the basics of birdwatching. Here is how Georgia discovered her love of birds and nature. I was very fortunate in that I grew up with a family that were really keen on camping and bushwalking and being outdoors. Um, and so I think it was this inevitable <laughs> sort of area of passion, I guess, for me that was going to arise. You know, it's almost like not a matter of choice when you've grown up in those circumstances, I think, because you realise how much it's your time of reset, but it's also family connection time. So I think very much just growing up, going out to the bush, but then having a little while of living in the city and not getting out to the bush, I think then reawakened this love of bushwalking in me. So I think in more recent years, getting back out, I sort of realised how much that was just refilling my tank I guess and um, it was where I had so much more curiosity about what was going on in the world and yeah so I think it was very much just spending time outdoors and yeah just noticing. When I picked up George's book 100 Australian Birds I felt like it had been written just for me as a beginning bird watcher. Here is the story of how her book came about. I guess you know I'd spent several years starting to sort of learn the birdwatching ropes, but not really considering myself to be a truly experienced birdwatcher. I still felt like I had so much to learn. In my spare time, I was doing a fair bit of art and a bit of writing, but I'd never sort of brought it to a particular area of focus. And then um, a good friend of mine was working with Heidi Grant as an editor, and she just mentioned, oh, there's a bit of interest in having a book written about starting birdwatching as a beginner as sort of like a bridging opportunity for people who don't maybe know as much, you know, people who might not want a full scientific um, style field guide. And so sort of on a whim, I was like, well, you know, maybe I could have a crack at that. (laughs) I ended up um, contacting the publisher. And then sort of from there, the idea of the book, the kind of concept of what it would be and how it would look really built as a collaborative process, which was really wonderful because I think I had a sense of maybe what I would have liked from a book, but then talking to people externally, it was very much thinking, oh, actually, Maybe I need to dial it back and make it even more basic or maybe I need more detail in other areas. It kind of was a bit collaborative, I guess, the way that it came together. Yeah, and then suddenly I found myself, I was thinking, okay, I have to choose 100 birds and draw them all and yeah. Australia is the home to approximately 830 amazing species of birds. Georgia says that one of the challenges of writing her book was choosing only 100 birds to focus on. There's definitely been moments thinking back, I was like, oh, if only, you know, I could have maybe squeezed an extra picture in here. Or it was just, it was challenging because I think I just love so many birds. And I don't know if you're the same, but every time I learn about another species in more detail, I just think, oh, that's fascinating and I could write about this. And But the main way I went about it was prioritising birds that you can see in a fair um, few different environments in Australia. I was hoping that most people in the major cities in Australia would have a decent chance of seeing the species that I picked. That said, I also included a few like more tantalising, rarer species that were less likely to be seen, you know, like the mallee which I think, you know, your likelihood of maybe going to see a mallee is pretty low unless you live out in sort of the mallee areas, but I think it's such a fascinating species and it kind of goes to show the amazing diversity of Australian birds. So 
there were the sort of open access entry level birds, if you will, but then the slightly more tantalizing further afield birds to hopefully get people a little bit more excited about getting out and exploring. I think as soon as you start learning about any of them, though, they become these kind of like objects of fascination where you just think, oh, just got to observe them and learn more. It was very tricky to narrow down, but I felt it was great to just try and get a cross section of different environments and then, you know, the ones with the most fascinating behaviours and ones that, you know, seem like everyday creatures to us, but, you know, have really complex lives. While she was researching, writing and illustrating her book, Georgia had to increase her knowledge about Australian birds. Here's what she found out. There were a lot of things that I realised I didn't know about birds going into this. These are creatures that you encounter all the time and you think you grow up around birds and you sort of know what they are. But then thinking more broadly, I was, you know, sort of realising like, oh, these are literally the only feathered creatures on the planet and they lay eggs. Isn't that kind of weird? And hips of them make incredibly intricate nests and and you know they truly are direct descendants of the dinosaurs you know all of these little details that it sort of I'd never stopped to consider even learning about the furcula which is the uh the breastbone the wishbone that you would break it you know if you'd had chicken for dinner is actually this really special bone that all birds have which allows them to fly so without that one tiny wishbone they're not capable of flight And just all those details that I think, you know, you haven't had a chance to look at because you haven't taken the time to learn. So I think for me, the book was an opportunity to just kind of get lost in those details, whether or not I had room to put them all in the book. But, you know, so that was a a steep learning curve. By the same token, I think it was learning about individual species of bird, realising that every single one is completely fascinating and has so much yet to be learned, (laughs) um, you know, about so, you know, like the satin bower birds, I think I'd seen them in the neighbourhood, but to learn about their bower making process and then, you know, they take about seven years to get into full maturity, um, you know, to breeding plumage and to think that these are birds that are just knocking around the neighbourhood that you could see all the time, but they have these really complex private lives and wood ducks, like I didn't know that Australian wood ducks would nest in a hollow and that the ducklings would take this amazing leap of faith after they've hatched to get down to the ground. So I guess, yeah, I just kept, the more I spoke to experts and the more that I kept reading, the more I realised every single Australian bird is kind of fascinating and has a really strange set of survival skills, you know. In her illustrations, Georgia highlights the features of different birds and what sets them apart from the rest. This meant that she had to spend a lot of time focusing on bird plumage. That's a fancy way of saying the feathers on a bird. Birds being the only feathered animals are, you know, primarily represented by the colour and pattern of their feathers. So that's really, as a bird watcher, that's the main, one of the main things that we're using as our first step to IDing a species. I guess the curveball that nature has thrown us is that birds, depending on their life stage and depending on the species, might have different plumage at different times of the year. So you might see a bird in spring and think, okay, I've ID'd that bird. I know what it is. I'll know it when I see it again. But then in wintertime, they might actually have a different set of feathers. So that can trip you up. So it's just an opportunity to learn a little bit more about their cycles. But I guess that's kind of three main distinguishing forms of plumage that's good to know about. I actually saw um, that you just had posted a really great infograph about decoding superb fairy wrens at different life stages. And I think, you know, tools like that are really helpful because it shows that depending on the age of the bird, a young bird might have one set of plumage when they're growing up. And then when they reach sexual maturity, they might then have a different set of feathers. So that's probably the first main form of plumage difference. So between young and fully mature birds. 
Um, and you'd see that in red browed finches or whistlers come to mind, Australian whistlers like Rufus Whistler or Golden Whistler. Um, so the young birds will look a little different from the adults. And then there's also seasonal plumage. So for instance, the Australasian grebe, which is a little beautiful water bird in the cooler months, will have one set of plumage. And then in the warmer months, we'll have a more vibrant sort of spectacular set of plumage, which we call breeding plumage and so that's about you know finding a reproductive partner and then they as they molt they then would go back to slightly less costly and less vibrant plumage and then third form of plumage um, difference is sexual dimorphism Um, so some bird species will have different presentation of gender I guess so the female birds what the one that comes to mind I guess um, off the bat is superb lyre birds so the female lyre bird has a very kind of dense brown tail with rich sort of long dense feathers and then the male superb lyre bird of course has these beautiful delicate sort of ornate lyre shaped tail feathers so yeah I guess um, a lot of that is also about seeking out a mate and showing that you have all of this extra energy you're such a wonderful resource gatherer that you can expend all of this extra fuel to make yourself look spectacular so of course this must be a good mate so I guess that's kind of what that's about yeah, so those are all wonderful things to sort of start keeping an eye out for when you first start bird watching. Georgia is a big fan of what she calls incidental bird watching in her local area. I must confess that I'm a big fan of the art of lazy bird watching, <laughs> which is kind of kind of a matter of taking advantage of where you are, depending on what you're doing in a day. Um, I guess I'm lucky in that I tend to prioritise making time to go out bushwalking. But I also find myself birdwatching a lot in moments that I might have spare, say, waiting for an appointment or, you know, walking in the park, you know, things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily outwardly think I'm going with the purpose of birdwatching. But sometimes you just find yourself in a moment observing things and allowing yourself to take a moment to just kind of let your curiosity spark about something and, you know, really focus um, in on what's going on around you that maybe you hadn't tuned into before. So I do think it can be really helpful, at least for me, because if you have a busy life to imagine saying, I'm going to take a full weekend and I'm going to drive, um, you know, to the Gary Word, to the Grampians and to go bird watching. It's lovely in theory, but not everyone has access to that. So I think, you know, it can be really wonderful to just say, I'm going to try and walk a little bit more slowly uh, as I go around the neighborhood. And when I hear a noise, I'm going to tune in. Like just today I was working here at home in the Dandenong Ranges and I heard this enormous sheep out on the veranda and this two um, king parrots had arrived on the veranda and were just cruising around having a look um, at our washing that was hanging out there. So it kind of, it was a nice opportunity for me, I guess, to just put everything down for just a minute and to go out and kind of have a look and see what they were doing. And But I would say also it's just wonderful when you talk to community members and they say, I've just seen this thing down at the local park or I've, I've seen this bird, um, so you could head there and check it out. So I think word of mouth is really good as well. When Georgia does head out into the bush for a more adventurous birdwatching trip, she makes sure that she is prepared. Well, I like to pack a bit of food um, and water and it just depends a little bit on how long of a walk you're planning on going on. But usually there are essentials that you kind of want to cover no matter how long or short you plan the walk on being because oftentimes you might think, I'm going to go out for just, you know, it'll be a two-hour walk be fine and then inevitably you see something fascinating and suddenly you've seen a powerful owl in the tree and you've just got to hang out and take more time so I guess my motto would be just to be prepared and you avoid regret in that way so I'd like to pack a map a first aid kit 
some kind of form of communication. So probably a phone with maybe an external charger if you feel like your phone's a little bit unreliable. Water. I usually take a thermos of tea with me just so I can sit and have a cup out in the bush, which is, you know, one of the best moments usually for me. <laughs> I have a trusty walking stick, which has been on me on so many different treks, which I usually try and uh, disinfect the tip of it with um, tea tray oil between bushwalks. So I'm not carrying too many microbes between different places. A head torch and batteries, just as a backup in case you're caught out after dark. Plenty of layers. Sometimes you can get a fair bit cooler than you'd expect to on a walk, especially if you're somewhere nice and damp, like in a rainforest. So some layers. Um, and by the same token, some sun protection, so hat and sunscreen. Definitely um, taking some snacks and then a little bit of extra food, maybe more than you would necessarily expect to eat on a walk, partly because you're expending a lot of energy when you're walking, but also just in case you want to spend a bit more time out than you'd plan to initially. Packing some loo paper and some toiletries is a good idea. I usually will throw in some matches or a lighter, just a source of um, flame if it's just as more sort of an insurance policy than anything else. Uh, multi-tool can be good, so a pocket knife or something like that. And then for longer walks, I'll tend to throw in an emergency whistle, which is just a way to um, let people know where you are if you're for some reason stuck somewhere. I also have a small personal locator beacon, which is very much for sort of those longer, more remote walks. But that's just a tiny pocket device where essentially... If you're stuck somewhere, you can pull out an antenna and press the button. It'll send a signal out and then emergency services are able to find you. So, yeah, these are all just, you know, sort of backup um, options for just in case something goes wrong. Um, and it's, I just think it's good to have peace of mind when you're walking. That way you're not ever feeling like on edge about whether or not you have these sort of um, insurance policies in place. And then, of course, I usually have my binoculars with me. Yeah, sometimes a camera. Sometimes it's nice not to take a camera and just try and be in the moment with your binos. Yeah, those are the main things. Georgia has learned a lot about birds through her research and writing her book. She has two pieces of advice for beginner bird watchers. I have a wonderful set of binos that were gifted to me and I have a camera if I want to go and take photos and I have lots of field guides, which is really wonderful. And these are all gifts that you receive if people know that you're a bird nerd at heart. But I think maybe the strongest bird watching tool, air quotes, is your community. And I think that's really about going out and being open to having conversations with people who are also interested in nature, and especially if you're going somewhere that you're not super familiar with. <laughs> Usually when you encounter someone on a bushwalk and you have a little chat, you can learn a lot from people that know the area in a different way to you. Yeah. And then I guess um, when you, if you do have a crew of people that you like to birdwatch with, those conversations that you have, I think, at least in my experience, are the ones that are where I learn the most. Um, you know, of course, we have wonderful field guides as resources and I've learned so much from them. But I think often it's been talking to people and having the opportunity to go out walking with people that are really knowledgeable. That's, you know, for me, that's been um, where I've learned the most and where I've um, found the most appreciation for the Australian environment is those conversations with, yeah, really experienced, fascinating people. One other little component is um, patience, which sounds like a very silly sort of uh, tool, but I think it's something that I really have to practice is um, allowing yourself to take a moment and being engaged because I think, you know, if you live a fast-paced lifestyle, which most of us do, um, it can be really hard to just give yourself permission to go and take some quiet time and to get lost in a moment, which, you know, that sounds a bit, a little bit, I don't know, a bit floozy or something, but I think it can be really hard to just say, I'm going to 
take the extra 10 minutes to just, you know, be in the moment and kind of find some stillness in looking at in birds and kind of being curious and allowing that to take over. So, yeah, I guess, yeah, community and patience. Writing 100 Australian Birds has really made Georgia think about the importance of birds in our lives. There's something special about birds and I'm not sure if it's maybe their presence in our everyday lives that means that we really tune into them and we find them engaging but also they're very charismatic creatures. You know, they show a lot of character. You know, like I think even watching a magpie that stalks across your front lawn, you know, it's been this creature that no doubt would have had territory where you're living for a really long time. And they sort of, they share our space maybe in a way that a lot of other creatures don't. So I think, you know, some of it's about proximity, but there's also something else special about birds. And I don't know, I can't, don't know if I can exactly put my finger on it other than that. They're, I think, a gateway to the wild for us where, you know, especially in places where maybe we don't have access to that otherwise or don't have that sense of immediacy around sort of non-human spaces. So I think it, they're a very grounding kind of presence, especially if you're living in an urban area. I think if you're in an office and you're working for the day, but you can look out and you can see that there's a bird making a nest um, in the park down the road, or you're seeing, you know, mast plovers uh, stalking on the nature strip, even if it's in the middle of a busy area. I think that can be a really special way of getting some perspective on life, which is a very philosophical way of looking at birds, I think. But I think that's, in my experience, what I find is that they kind of bring me back to, to ground. I am so grateful that Georgia could join us today and that she poured her love and talents into her book, 100 Australian Birds. It's a book that I personally treasure and one that I give to friends and family who love birds too. You can find out more about Georgia by visiting weekendbirder.com. Keep updated on the latest news by following us on the usual social media channels. And now it's time to head outside for some incidental birdwatching. <laughs>